Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. And it also has some very um, difficult and disturbing and um, frightening. And I decided to go dark. So, the first thing I want to discuss, which is the the passage of Sota, which I'm going to describe in a moment, is very, very difficult. It's it's very disturbing. I do not claim to understand it. Um, I have some things to say that I hope will explain some of it or part of it, but even after... I finish, uh, there will be difficulties that I'm not able to explain. So I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to explain it completely or, or satisfactorily, but hopefully I'll be able to explain a little bit of it to make it a little bit less horrible than it otherwise would be. But it, but it is horrible. I just have to, have to get you ready for it. So... The, uh, the first thing I want to say is um, our belief, traditional belief, is that the Torah is given in two parts. There's the written law, that's the five books of Moses, the Chumash, which we're studying, and then there's the oral law, and the oral law is what God said to Moshe at Mount Sinai, explaining the written text. So God said, Moshe, write down these words, and now Moshe, I'm going to explain to you what it means. Later, with time, that oral law is written down in, 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 in written down in what we have as the Talmud. Now, when it comes to um, interpretation, Biblical commentary. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. Uh, uh, the binding of Isaac, Akedas Yitzchak. What does it mean? What is the lesson we're supposed to learn from it? What's the symbolism? You can have your opinion. I have my opinion. There are rabbis from every generation going back to Sinai that have had their opinion. And everyone's entitled to their opinion. Many times we're here in class, and whatever the the subject was, the uh, I don't I don't even remember whatever it was. I can give my opinion. I'm entitled to my opinion. It could be the rabbis in the Talmud said something different, but I'm entitled to my own opinion. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. But that only is true in the area of commentary. But when it comes to law when it comes to halacha, Jewish law, then I'm not entitled. Meaning, if the oral law, if the Talmud says, this is what the passage means, then that explanation is authoritative. And many times, the Torah will say something in the written text, and the oral law will explain it in a way that is very different 
than it appears in the written text. Of course, then you have to ask the question, well, why would God say to write it this way, but I'm really explaining to you it means something that you would not have thought it meant? Okay, that's always a good question. We can come back to that. But that is the fact. So, the section that we're going to talk about is a section of halacha, of law. And in this passage in particular, the Talmudic description, explanation of this passage has it come out very different than if you just read the biblical verses by themselves. So it's very important here especially to to hear what the Talmud has to say about this. Oh, I need a Chumash. Okay. So let's start, please, on page 752. Page 752 at the bottom of the page, the last line. Vayidaber Hashem on Moshe Lamar. Hashem says to Moshe, Daber al-Bnei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, top of page 754, and tell them, Ish, ish, kisiste ishto, umal abamal, a man whose wife, a husband, whose wife has gone astray and committed a, a, a sin of unfaithfulness against him, And pasuk um, thirteen, and it's possible, yeah, it's possible that she may have had relations with another man that she's not married to, hidden from her husband. The aid ain ba, and there are no witnesses, and the husband becomes angry and jealous, then the husband can bring his wife to the Beis Amigdash, to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, or the Mishkan, the sanctuary that traveled with them, but later it was the Beis Amigdash in Yerushalayim. And then there was a procedure that would take place. <clears throat> and basically, just to give the short version of it, the woman comes before the Kohen and there is an offering that is brought and then the Kohen requires this woman to take an oath that she was not unfaithful, that she did not do what her husband accused her of doing and the Kohen uh, requires her to drink a certain drink, uh, like a potion, a liquid, and if she was lying and what she said was untrue and she in fact was unfaithful, then the water that she, drink will, she drank will be poisonous and will cause her to be cursed and to pass away. So it's a horrible, dreadful thing. It's just... So, let me start... 
to try to explain a little bit of it. The first thing is that in Jewish law, adultery is a capital crime. Like murder is a capital crime. If all of the conditions would be in place of, of crim Jewish criminal law, the, the, a, a person who commits adultery would receive capital punishment. The man and the woman. For the man and the woman. No difference between the man and the woman. With two witnesses and warnings. Yes. According, to, according to Jewish criminal law. Now, one of the reasons that this passage is difficult for many people today is that that, that concept is just not in our minds. I'm sure a lot of people think that adultery is not a good thing, a very, very bad thing, a very serious thing. People may have different opinions about it, but... I think there are very few people today that would say it's on the same level as an actual premeditated murder. Okay, but the Torah is saying it is. That, that, and, and in order to understand the passage, you have to at least understand the assumptions that the Torah is making, that God is making in, in giving these laws, and, and, and that just like murder is uh, a capital punish a capital crime because you have uh, destroyed someone's life. Adultery is likewise a capital crime because you have destroyed someone's marriage and someone's family, and uh, that's on a sim similar level. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Not that we are going to be able to agree with it completely or see it that way, but at least to be able to to put ourselves in the mindset of what's going on in this passage. That's number one. Now, let's start with this scenario. What is it that happened in this case? If a woman is married and she has an adulterous affair and there are two eyewitnesses and there was a warning and there were two eyewitnesses, don't ask me right now what exactly the eyewitnesses are supposed to witness. Let's just leave that. Let's leave something to the imagination for a moment. Okay? Just... Then, that goes to court. That is a legal case. Witnesses cross-examine the witnesses and testimony and evidence and defense and discussion and that goes to the Sanhedrin and if there, it, the person is found guilty, then they receive, the, the man and the woman receive capital punishment. That's not our scenario. That's not our subject. Our subject has the following scenario, and it's only alluded to in the words, but this is where the Talmudic explanation becomes very, very important. There are two steps here. One is called Kinui, and the other is called stira. And those are words that are used in a very precise way. And here's what they mean. Number one. Number one. A husband becomes suspicious and jealous of his wife. Suspicious that she is having an affair with so-and-so, Plony. Remember Plony? With so-and-so, John Doe. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he says to her, 
I am suspicious of you and you had better not be hanging around with Ploni Amoni, with, with, that, with that person. So he is, he's not just expressing anger or jealousy, he's expressing a specific, specific suspicion about a specific person. That's step number one. Then, step number two is that this woman is then seen by two eyewitnesses not necessarily having an actual uh, uh, intimate relationship, but going into a private place. Going into a hotel room, closing the door, going into a place, closing the door, and who knows what's going on behind the door. Now, if either of those things did not happen, then this passage does not apply. You have a husband who just gets in his mind one day, you know, uh, um, uh, I'm suspicious of you. He is not allowed and there is no recourse for him to require her to, to do anything or to answer or to do anything. Go to therapy, you know, do whatever you're going to do. But, but that, that scenario doesn't work. Even if he is suspicious of her doing something wrong with a specific person, there too nothing happens until the next step, which is... There are two eyewitnesses, this objective, independently verified, that she has gone into a private place with this man. Now, let's let's stop right here. Let's stop right here. Is this what is known as Kinui? That's that's uh Kinui is the first one. Right. Is is right. the accusation. Stira is when she goes into a private place. What's the word? Stira. Stira. Satira. Satira. Okay. Now <clears throat> According to Jewish law, and again I realize this too is something that may seem out of date. However, I would have said it was out of date until this year. All of a sudden, it's back in fashion. I'll explain what I mean. The Torah says, this is a Torah law. According to Torah law, a man and a woman who are not married to each other are not allowed to be alone in a place where something immoral could happen, meaning there's no one else there, and meaning the door is locked. Even if nothing happens, it could be completely innocent, nothing happens. That is a prohibition called yichud. Yichud means being alone. The prohibition of Yichud applies to any man and woman who are not married to each other. There's an exception, uh, a father and daughter, uh, a mother and a son. There are exceptions, that's permitted. But basically anybody else, to be alone in a room with privacy for a certain amount of time where something immoral could happen, that by itself is an Isidur a biblical prohibition. So, for a woman or a man, for a person to go to somebody's hotel room and go inside and close the door, that is a biblical prohibition. Now, 
one of the things that we've seen in the last, uh, what is it, in the last six or eight months is that that makes a whole lot of sense. Because if you don't want something bad to happen, don't go into a hotel room and close the door. Or an office and lock the door. Personally, I have a practice. I'm very, very careful about this. Number one, my office, the entire side of it is windows that face the street, which means that anyone who comes to speak to me is visible from outside. Number two, the doors to my office, at least one of them, is always unlocked. And almost always that I meet with someone uh, of the other gender, a, a woman, <laughs> either someone else is in the building and the door is unlocked and could come in at any time, or we're sitting in front of the window so that we are clearly visible to anyone that passes by, or something like that. And if for some reason there would be a reason for me to go to someone's house, or for someone to come to my house and there's no one else there, the front door stays ajar, open, wide open, ajar. That's, that's my standard, that's what I do. That's what is required according to Jewish law. So, just by the way, um, I know uh, many of us have, thank God, a lot of weddings coming up. So, Part, there is a part of a traditional Jewish wedding ceremony called Yichud, which means after the chuppah, the chassid and kala, bride and groom, they go into a room in private for about 10 minutes. And there are witnesses outside the door that make sure no one goes in, no one comes out. What's happening there? Nothing. Chas v'shalom. Get your mind out of the gutter. Nothing's happening. They're having some food. They're changing their shirt. Chas v'shalom. Don't, don't think like that. But what's the point of it? The point of it is before they're married, they're not supposed to engage in yichud, in being alone in a room. What does it mean to be married? What it means to be married is that prohibition is taken away. They're allowed to have yichud. There is no greater way to demonstrate the fact that their status has changed, that they are now husband and wife setting up a new home together, that they're allowed to have yichud. Yes? Um, so being in a car, that's okay. Okay, so, uh, so, so um, there are a lot of details. It depends what kind of a car, where it's driving. In a car, in the city, is okay. Uh, in, on the highway, in the daytime, is okay. At night, it's not okay. So uh, there are a lot of details to it, and we can cover that another time. But I just want you to understand the idea. The point that I'm getting to is, the only way this horrible scenario comes about, it's very limited. Both of these steps have to have happened and this woman and horrible things are going to happen to her. <clears throat> but let's start here. She did something wrong. She did something that is a violation of one of the Torah's laws. It's not just a crazy husband. But an objective violation of the Torah's laws that causes this jealousy and this situation to occur. Okay. That's setting the stage. So she goes to the Beis Amikdash, to the Kohen, and she's required to take this oath that I mentioned to you. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. 
she's required to drink this water. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then, whichever way it is, the truth will be made public. Because what happens to her is, is public. If, in fact, she's lying, what happens to her is, is public. Everyone sees that she was lying and she was unfaithful. And if, in fact, she was telling the truth and her husband was wrong, then it's likewise visible to everyone. Everyone knows. It's a public, known outcome. Okay. Now, there are a few details that are not within the text of the Torah, but they are within the Talmud, and they are crucial to understanding this scenario. <clears throat> Number one. If her husband accuses her, she can admit. Yes, I did it. I admit. And, if her husband wants to be divorced from her, he is allowed to file for divorce and, and nothing else happens. So, it, nothing is, has to be public, you don't have to go to the base of Migdash, don't have to drink anything. He can file for divorce anytime, regardless of whether she was unfaithful. Right, but I'm saying... I, what, the point I'm making is nothing happens, to her. nothing happens to her. Nothing public happens to her. If there were witnesses to the actual affair, as I said before, that meets the criteria of criminal law, then that goes to Sanhedrin, that goes to court. Okay. If he says to her, I don't want you to go to the base of English. She's not required to go. Meaning, there's no requirement that this goes to the next stage which involves this public uh, uh, exposure. He could say, you know, I do believe you or I don't believe you, I, I want to stay married, whatever, but let, let's just keep it between ourselves. He has the right to do that. And if she refuses, she doesn't have to go. There's no forcing here. It doesn't appear like that from, from the words themselves, from the text. But, but that's why it's important to understand. And again, I'm not giving you my interpretation, my opinion. This is the authoritative explanation of what the passage means. If she doesn't want to go, she says, I don't want to go. Why would she ever want to go? Hold that question for a minute. We'll come to that. I don't want to go. Then whatever happens, happens. Maybe the husband forgives her. Maybe he wants to stay married. Maybe he doesn't want to stay married. But she could simply say, I don't want to go. Or another possible outcome is if she says, um, I did it. And the husband could also has the choice to say, okay, I forgive you. We'll stay married. Husband has the right to do that. Husband and wife have the right to do that for each other. It, it, it's a very, very important point. And this also doesn't come through. Being unfaithful, however bad it, you consider it, according to Jewish law, 
is not necessarily the end of a marriage. It is possible to uh, heal from that and to go on to have a very happy marriage. So it is not the end of the marriage. It does not need to be the end of the marriage. So nothing is being forced on anybody. Now, okay, if that's true, then now let's try to understand what's happening within the passage. So, if why would she agree? Why would she go? Well, if she's guilty, she's not going to go. I mean, she's not going to go because she just won't drink. She'll just say, I'm not going. And he'll, uh, he'll have to do whatever he'll have to do because... But she's not completely innocent. She's definitely guilty of, of this. She's, she's, she's right, 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 right. She's guilty of this. Right, but that doesn't... I don't but, trust this guy. Right. Don't be alone with him. Right, right. He deliberately went alone with him. Right, but that does not carry with it capital punishment. <laughs> no. Right, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's serious. I'm, I'm saying... The marriage is in trouble. Right. The marriage is in trouble. Let's... I'm glad you said that. The marriage... This... This marriage is in trouble. Now the question is, can this marriage be saved? Okay. So if she's guilty, presumably she's not going. She's not drinking. <laughs> no drinking. Not, whoever gives her anything, no, no drinking. Fine. Now, if she's innocent, if she's innocent, and it's private... she might also choose not to go. Why do I want to make a public spectacle of something? No one else knows about it. You accuse me, you're wrong. It's not true. I don't want to go. The only logical reason she would go is if she has been accused, she did something wrong that, that, that lends some uh, uh, suspicion but in fact she's innocent and now it's public it's become public somehow rumors are like that and she wants to be able to clear her name that's really the only logical reason to do this also to convince her husband that she that his fear is yeah not only right but it's but it's not only going to convince her husband right. it's also going to convince anyone else who heard about it because because it's going to be a public visible thing right. now so, she comes, and she's required to take an oath. Now, let's talk about the oath. This is very, very important. Number one, the oath only covers the time that she was married to this husband. Meaning, a husband does not have a right to ask questions about what his wife did before they were married, just like a wife does not have the right to ask questions about what her husband did before they were married. I, you have the right to ask. You have the right to decide not to marry someone if you don't like what they did. But there's no legal right. Meaning, I'm not entitled from a legal point of view to ask a question about what happened before the, we were married. The only thing that, that, that concerns me is while we're married. So, the first issue is that this oath only covers the time from the time that they were married. That's number one. <coughs> number two, the procedure only harms her if she is guilty 
and he is innocent. If he is also guilty, then nothing happens to her. So, there is no way for a husband to be hypocritical about accusing his wife of something that he himself is actually doing himself, this is not going to achieve that purpose. Husbands are often hypocritical. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they were allowed multiple wives at the time, so it's you know, how you define... I said I'm not able to explain the whole thing. I'm just explaining little pieces. I, they're just little little stickler, little pieces I'm explaining. So the converse is not true. The wife can't accuse the husband. There is no ceremony in reverse. I don't understand that. I don't understand it. I, I'm... I'm not able to explain that part of it. There is still a part of it that is horribly unequal. I'm just trying to, in, in very minor ways, minimize the inequality, but it's still there. I said at the very beginning. I'm not able to completely explain. Okay. So what's the scenario that it makes the most sense for this to happen? The scenario is she did something wrong of being alone with this other man after being warned, but she is innocent. I'm just the scenario. And somehow people are talking or the husband is not accepting and it's become public and she wants a way to publicly prove her innocence. Here's the question. Why not go to court? Innocence is a legal category. You want to prove that you're innocent, you want to prove that you did not commit a crime, you're being accused of committing a crime, you go to court, you go to the Sanhedrin. And, and I, I don't know how, they'll, whatever they'll, but my, my question is, why is this subject located in the base Hamigdash with a Kohen and not in a Sanhedrin with judges. Right. Is it because in the courts you would need two witnesses? Okay, so you don't have two witnesses, but Sanhedrin has to deal with situations. What do you do when there's not two witnesses? So you got So there are ways to deal with that. But it, it's very clear that this ceremony is not a judicial ceremony. It is a spiritual ceremony, and that's part of what makes it so weird. What has this got to do with a question about innocence or guilt? And where it's found in the Torah, in the middle of all the laws of Kohen. Okay, it's exactly. The chapter in the middle, the laws before and after are all books. So this, so so this this principle is very very important to understand. The the term for marriage in the Talmud is Kiddushin. Kiddushin is the same word as Kedusha, holiness, okay. sanctification. A marriage is the sanctification of a relationship between a man and a woman. It is a relationship between a man and a woman that is made holy that is made sanctified. That's what marriage is. When you have a marriage that's in trouble, 
You have a marriage where the sanctity, the kedusha, the holiness of the marriage is in doubt. It's not a legal question. It's a sanctity question. It's a holiness question. And the question before us is, is there a way to bring back holiness to this marriage? If it was a legal question where there were actual witnesses, that would go to Sanhedrin. This, because there are not witnesses to the actual affair, there are only witnesses to the secondary issue of being alone, that means what's in danger is the holiness. And if we're going to fix it, we have to bring back the holiness to this marriage. And how do we do it? Well, there's only one way. And that is, if there would be a miracle that comes from God that attests that this marriage is still holy. There's no other way. There are no witnesses. There's no way to prove it. The only possibility is for a miracle. So, God ordains these laws to provide a ceremony that creates the opportunity, assuming she's innocent, of a miracle which will be public and visible that will show God himself is attesting that this woman is innocent. Miracle only occurs if she's guilty, though. It's a, it's a normal... No, the, no, it's a miracle in both... Well, it's a miracle in both ways. Because... water and nothing happens to her. No, it's not a If she dies, no. that's the miracle. No, because, no, it's a miracle in both ways. Because this water has the power to kill her if she is guilty, then the fact that she is innocent, it's not... This is not like the, the, the Salem witch trials where they throw someone in the water and if you drown, that means you're guilty. <laughs> the point is that there is actually God here who is determining what the outcome is going to be. So it's a miracle in either direction. One is things follow their natural path and the other is things do not. But which, it's, it's decided by God. Now, there's actually there's a phrase... It's a phrase in Greek literature. Deus ex machina. Does anyone know that phrase? Deus ex machina. So, Deus ex machina is a great phrase. Um, literally, it means God coming in a machine. Which is interesting that 2,000 years ago, the Greeks had a word for machine. Machina. Machine. And what it means is there'd be a play... And it's like all these things go wrong and there's no way for the hero to, to be saved. And then all of a sudden God comes down and saves the hero at the last minute. Meaning there's no natural way that this is going to work out. There's going to be some extraordinary, supernatural way to be able to have this come out. Now. Okay, so what the story is really about, which is very, very different than if you read it or if you, if you read uh, what I would call more superficial uh, commentaries about it, what it really is about is you have a woman who's been accused of something 
and people are gossiping about her and she is uh, uh, suffering because people are gossiping about her God in his mercy creates this scenario for her to be able to prove her innocence and return her to this state of holiness and purity. Yes? Isn't that the other reason why she gets brought to the coin who deals with Saras, which is, is the punishment for her Lashanhar? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 it's, it's connected to that. Yes, it's connected, yes, very good. It's connected to that. I'm going to come to that in one moment. Sorry. No, 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 it's good. It's good. It's connected to that subject. But here's the, here's the other part of the lesson. Without that miracle, there's no other way. That is what this is what this is also about, and this is exactly what you just said. This is about the danger that gossip causes. Because once it's out there, there's no way to undo it. It's impossible. Unless you've got God willing to do this miracle. But once you don't have that anymore. So, what are we supposed to get from this? Number one, we're supposed to get how serious it is, unfaithfulness, how serious that is. Number two, we're supposed to get not the way it looks from the, just the passage itself, but that uh, this is really a way that God is allowing to, for her to be able to clear herself under these uncertain circumstances. We also are supposed to learn from this the nature of marriage, that it has to be holy, and if its holiness is in doubt, there's got to be a way to bring that back. But the, a practical lesson for us is just to be so, so careful that, that rumors and gossip can cause damage that that cannot be that cannot be retracted that cannot be taken back under any under under normal circumstances now so i want to show you one 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 further point please look what did i at pusik at page 756 Page 756, um, uh, near the top of the page, Pasuk number 19. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the Torah says, the Kohen gives her an oath, requires her to take an oath. And then there is the text of the oath. And Pasuk number 21, the Kohen gives her this oath and says the following words to her. Then, Pasuk 23. Okay, so he, he, he gave her an oath. Now, now what happens? V'kosav es ha'olos ha'ele ha'kohen b'sefer. Then the Kohen is required to write the words of the previous verses of the oath. Write the words on a piece of parchment. Like the way a Torah is written. It's just a small piece of parchment to the previous few lines. <coughs> Write it on a piece of paper. Umacha, and then grind up the parchment. 
el mehamarim and put it into the water. So what this liquid is that she's drinking is water, water with ground up parchment and ink. So first of all, uh, just to be clear, parchment means it comes from the skin of a kosher animal. I'm not saying it tastes delicious, but it's not poisonous. And ink that is used to write a Torah scroll always comes from all kosher sources. So again, I'm not saying that this is a, a, a delicious delicacy, but it's certainly not poisonous in any manner. It, uh, under natural circumstances. So you take the parchment, written on it these words, and grind it up and put it in the water and that's what she drinks and then if she's right. guilty the curses happen and if she's innocent the blessings happen. And okay, a little dust is always good. Fine. Fine. That's just to even things out. Fine. Okay. Now. So, hold on one second. Just, just a minute. The Kohen writes the previous few verses and grinds it up and puts it in the water. Let's think about that for one second. And let's look at... Basu 21. So here are the words of the curse. It starts right here. God should place this as an oath and a promise with among your people that will that God will cause, if you're guilty, that your body will disintegrate and the curses will happen. Wait a second, it's God's name. We have a pretty important principle. You don't erase God's name. You don't grind up God's name. You don't destroy God's name. If we have a Torah scroll and it gets old, we bury it. We don't even put it in the garbage. If we have God's name is the holiest thing that we have and it's written exactly, it doesn't, it's, it, it, it's written out God's name. To erase God's name is a terrible, terrible sin. So, our rabbis asks, ask, how is it possible that you're taking God's name and you're destroying it for this woman to drink? It seems like the, the ultimate of an insult to God. And our rabbis give the following answer. God is willing to cause an act of disrespect against himself if it could possibly lead to returning peace to a married couple. If this ceremony might somehow possibly lead to Shalom Bias, to returning harmony between husband and wife, God says, you can take my name, you can burn it up, you can destroy it, you can grind it up, it's disrespectful under other circumstances. It's a sin, terrible sin under other circumstances. You're going to possibly create peace between husband and wife? It's worth it. I'll forego respect due to me. What a powerful lesson. Two lessons. Number one, you, that is the goal of this ceremony. And it, again, 
I'm, I'm being very open. It doesn't, it doesn't come through when you just read the verses. And it still has lots of problems and lots of inequity in it. But the goal of it is to try to be able to bring back Sholem Bayez, peace within the home, within a married couple, if it is at all possible. And number two, that God is willing to sacrifice, so to speak, his own honor. How much more so should any human being be willing to sacrifice their honor or their expense or whatever it would be if it could possibly lead to peace between a husband and wife? It's very difficult. It's still difficult. There are parts of it that I do not understand. But there are parts of it that we can understand and that have uh, tremendous and practical lessons uh, in our lives. Okay. Let me go on to the next uh, piece. And the next piece is the next passage, which is also difficult. I won't say horrible or frightening or terrible, but it's weird. It's weird. And this starts on page 758. Um, Pasuk number one. And this immediately follows. We just finished with the Sota, and now we go to the next subject, which is called Nazir. And this is like this. If a, a man or woman takes upon themselves an oath to become a Nazir. The word Nazir is related to, he, to, to the Hebrew word Yazir, which means to separate, to move away from. And a Nazir is a person who moves away from, separates himself from drinking alcohol. He goes on the wagon, or she goes on the wagon, and takes an oath for some amount of time. It could be 30 days, it could be less, it could be more. We know a couple of famous stories of individuals who were in Nazir their whole life. Shimshon Samson was born. He, that also involved not drinking any alcohol and not cutting his hair. It's not exactly clear what the connection is with the hair and the alcohol. Okay, that's, let's leave that for now. There are other examples of that. It's, it's a rare kind of a thing. But a person makes an oath and then there's all this discussion of um, at the end of the term they have to bring certain sacrifices. <coughs> what happens if they fell off the wagon and they interrupted it? They have to start over again. So that's what the Torah describes. Okay, it's kind of a strange thing. A person takes an oath. They're not going to drink alcohol. It's kind of a strange thing. Our rabbis make the following comment. And they say, why is it that this passage of Nazir immediately follows the passage of Sota? Doesn't appear to be connected in any way whatsoever. And the rabbis give the following reason. If a person was in the crowd of a sota, in other words, a, a sota happened. A woman went to the base of Mikdash and drank the water. And remember, it happens in public. 
and a woman and a, and, a, and a person, man or woman, was there and saw this happening. So I'm just I'm a bystander. I'm a, I'm in the audience, and I see this drama playing out of this couple and the marriage is in trouble and and, and whatever the result is, it doesn't matter what the result is. A rabbi say if a person saw that it would be the right thing for a person seeing that to say, you know what, I better check my own life. I better check and make sure I'm on the right track. And you know, alcohol leads to lots of problems. I better stay away from alcohol completely for some amount of time just to make sure that... that I don't come to do something, maybe this, or maybe something else, that, that could lead me astray. Yes? No, no real difference. No real difference. So... This is an amazing lesson. And this is also a very, very practical lesson. If I see something happen, if I see some uh, scandal unfold, uh, I mean, that's what Facebook is for, right? I mean, we're doing this all day long. There are, two, there are two kinds of reactions that I might have. One is to say, that's so horrible, it's so disgusting. I would never do something like that. That, 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 that person is, is a disgusting person. I'm so much higher, holier, better, more moral than that person. It's, I have the ability to look down upon that person. That's a big mistake. Because here's the secret. It's a fact of human nature. Everyone is capable of doing everything. Everything. Everyone is capable of making any mistake. And that is a truth. And if you ever think that it's not true... It's still true. <laughs> and what our rabbis are teaching us is, if I see something happening, the right response is not to say, oh, that's so ridiculous, that's so horrible, that's so... I would never... The right thing is to say, I need to introspect. What, what steps can I take to ensure that I will not do that or even anything similar to that. It is the right thing for my reaction to be I could do it. What steps can I take to make sure that I don't do it? <clears throat> I'm going to show you this in a very, very graphic manner. <clears throat> okay. I'm not going to finish everything I want to do. I'm going to try to go fast. Please turn to page 636. Page 636. 
is the beginning of the parish of Achremos, and it describes how Aharon and the other Kohanim are supposed to go into the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKadoshim. You know the Holy of Holies in the base of Migdash in the Holy Temple. No one went in all year round. Only on Yom Kippur did the Kohen Gadol, the high priest himself, went in to offer certain offerings in order to achieve forgiveness for the Jewish people. This is the Torah reading for Yom Kippur morning. Very appropriate. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. We have the custom to fast in order to be like angels. We, many people have the custom to wear white garments, to be like angels. We're not even human beings on Yom Kippur. We're so holy. And we're asking Hashem for forgiveness. And we're removing ourselves from food and drink and sleep and we're just in the synagogue. We're praying, asking for forgiveness. It's the holiest, most uh, uh, um, um, transcendent day And we're only thinking about holiness. And what's the most appropriate passage in the whole Torah to read from? Here it is. The Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the place that no one was allowed to go, only the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. And that's what we're thinking about. We're we're imagining as if we're standing there and, and we're watching the Kohen Gadol and he comes back out. And remember, the Kohen Gadol, he takes off all the gold, uh, uh, clothing, he wears only pure white, holy, pure, simple, nothing physical, nothing material, pure, holy. And you know, as Yom Kippur goes on, and, and the, the midday, and then the afternoon, and the evening, and the crescendo, the dramatic conclusion is Ni'ilah, the, and, and we say out loud, Hashem Hu Akim, it's as if we're seeing God face to face. God is Lord. God is Lord seven times. Shema Yisrael at the end we blow the shofar. The highest spiritual moment of the whole year. Okay. Please turn to page 648. Because while the total reading for the morning of Yom Kippur makes perfect sense there's a little bit of difficulty with the Torah reading for the afternoon of Yom Kippur. I could get fired just for reading this out loud. I mean, much less speaking about this. But this is Yom Kippur. This is the afternoon. This is more holy than the Holy of Holies in the morning because we're closer to Ne'ilah. So what message do I need to hear from God at Mincha on the afternoon of Yom Kippur. God says to Moshe, tell the Jewish people and say, next page 650, don't sleep with your mother. (laughs) Don't sleep with your stepmother. Don't sleep with your sister. Don't sleep with your granddaughter. A grandmother shouldn't sleep with her grandson. Don't a man shouldn't sleep with his daughter-in-law. A woman shouldn't sleep with her husband with her son-in-law. A man shouldn't have relations both with a woman and her daughter. A man shouldn't have relations with a woman and her sister. 
I'm sorry. I mean, a, a human, a, 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 a woman is not allowed to have relations with an animal. I mean, it's here, puzzle, Chav Gimel, number 23. I'm asking you, it's Yom Kippur. I mean, it's Yom Kippur. Is this the message I have to come to shul on Yom Kippur on the holiest day and God's got to tell me don't sleep with animals? I mean, that's that's really, that's the relevant, I mean, it's... Fix away your appetite. <laughs> yes. I think those laws came because Probably, it's happened. Uh, yes, I understand it happens. I understand why it's in the Torah. Yeah. No, no, no. I understand why it's in the Torah. It happened, yes. But on Yom Kippur, I mean, we, we choose what to read. We choose the Torah reading. This is what we're choosing. So I'll tell you why we're choosing it. We're choosing it because here's the lesson of Yom Kippur. You think you're so holy. You think that because you're fasting a little bit, because you're in shul for a few hours, that means you're not going to do anything wrong? That this is so removed? No. Let's, let's stick with the basics. Don't sleep with your mother. Let's start there, okay? Don't sleep with your sister. Don't, okay? don't, don't show me how you think how holy you are because every single person has the potential to do every one of these mistakes. Every single person. And that's why, okay, I'm going to finish in a minute. And that's why this person who saw something horrible and what he could have done, maybe other people in that crowd probably said, oh, look how silly and stupid and immoral those crazy people are. I don't have to worry about that. But there's one person in the crowd that says, you know what? What steps can I take to move myself further, even further back from the edge of committing, making a mistake? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go without alcohol for a while. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step. I'm going to do something. And that's the reason that this person is called a Nazir. So I told you, what does Nazir mean? Nazir means Lahazir, to move away from, to separate from. But Nazir means something else. Nazir means a crown. A crown. Says Rabbeinu Bechaye, one of the medieval commentators, the word Nazir is used for this man, ki nezer elakov al rosho, because God's crown is resting on his head. Because he realizes he could make the same mistake and therefore he's going to take steps to ensure that it doesn't happen. And that's a tremendously powerful lesson. And, 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 and I'll just share this and I'll finish. You know, there are these stories with um, all kinds of uh, scandals. So obviously, I mean, I'm a rabbi, I'm an Orthodox rabbi, so scandals involving Orthodox rabbi hit close to home. And um, it, it, uh, there was a few years ago, and there was a scandal, which I'm not going to repeat, and it involved someone. It was horrible. It was, it was hor terrible, horrible. And um, it, this was a person who I, I, was friend, I was friends with, who I respected, who in certain ways was a mentor to me, uh, and he did something so horrible and despicable. So 
among the many kinds of fallout, it happened that the next year, the following uh, 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 spring, this happened in September, the following spring, uh, was the annual convention of our rabbinic organization, the RCA Rabbinical Council of America, which this person had been a member of. He was expelled very, very quickly, but he had been a member of. So, at our and it happened that year. I was the co-chair of the of the convention, so we knew one of the main subjects that we were going to cover is how do we protect against this? How do we look out for each other? How do we make sure nothing like this ever happens? And and we had professionals who came to us, and there was a, a lot of things that went on. And one of the main lessons, and this is directing, I'm, I'm pointing the finger to myself, but each person should point it to themselves. That's the whole point. If I say to myself, thank God I've never done anything. I, it's true. I've never done anything that that that, uh, that is scandalous. And thank God I have not had such a scandal. And th that's good because I didn't do anything to deserve to have a scandal. And it didn't happen. And if I think to myself, you know, I'm safe. I know myself. I know myself. I'm not going to do anything like that. That's the biggest mistake that could be. That's, that's how everybody gets in trouble. Mm -hmm. The healthy approach is for every, one of, for, for every one of us to say, I could be that guy. I could be exactly that guy. I could make that mistake. I could rationalize it. I could fall into it step by step. I could, whatever it is, I could be that guy. Now, what are the steps that I'm going to take to make sure that I'm not going to be that guy. So I described to you before, like my own policies, which I was doing that beforehand, but I mean, steps and policies and, you know, a uh, person that has a uh, uh, person, uh, a rabbi that has uh, uh, an office with a door and a locks, put a window in the door. You know, take steps to make sure that that kind of a thing cannot happen. Don't rely on, it would never happen to me, I'm totally above it. That's the, resp the response of the Nazar is, it could happen. Any one of us can make any one of these mistakes. Now, what steps are we going to take? When we do that, then God's crown rests on our head. Thank you very much. Thank you. I have a question. I have ever what? Since she would not, she, she would not.